The reading is taken from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creation that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janet, very much indeed. Um, Jonathan or Chris, I wonder if you wouldn't just mind um, asking the guys doing the chainsawing. Could they wait till 10? Is that all right? It'd be great. Thank you so much. Good. Well, we've got a lot to get through today, so I'm going to do my best. Um, to, uh, but it'd be really handy to have um, Genesis 1 open, because I really want to base what we uh, look at today on what's going on in the text. Uh, so it's on page uh, 3, I think it is, isn't it? Um, and then moving on to page 4. Uh, that would be really handy. Uh, so the, the context, just so if you weren't here last week or the week before, is that we've got to the second half of day six. Now day six, if you remember, mirrors day three. Uh, so days one to three uh, were all about, in a sense, what was formless getting formed. And then days four through to six are all about what was empty being filled. And on day three, we had, in a sense, we had two acts of creation, and the same happens on day six. So Howard, who was with you last week, was talking about at the beginning of day six, and we've now, in a sense, got to midday, uh, so to speak, uh, on uh, day six. Don't worry, I'm not going to make any of you stand in the baptistry or, or do any running around uh, like that. Uh, but that's where we've got to. And so at this point, in a sense, we simply stop and we marvel that human life has a place in this vastness. So, so God has already spent, metaphorically, six and a half, five and a half days lavishing his love and his care and his power and his majesty on the whole of creation. And all of that happens before any of us show up and join the party. But if you look at verse 26, you'll see that we have one new feature here. And in previous creative acts, God simply speaks. So you get lots of, and God said, and God said, and God said. Here, in verse 26, is the first and only time we hear, Jonathan, thank you so much, we hear what God is thinking and purposing when he creates. 
So we hear that God says, let us make mankind in our own image. We will focus today on what being made in God's image means, including being made male and female, and we'll also look at God's verdict at the end of day six. Now, Sue said in her prayers, uh, commentators have noticed that that's a plural, let us make, and that that could be read as an early reference to the Trinity, God in three persons contemplating creation in love and in power. Now, while this may indeed be a tantalizing hint that's later filled out uh, along with uh, verse 2 of chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, most commentators say this is primarily what we would recognize as a royal we. So we are used to, uh, on occasions uh, when uh, the monarch speaks, uh, they do speak in the plural, certainly back in history. Uh, so in England, uh, we would uh, think it would be okay uh, for the monarch to say, we are not amused. Uh, we understand how that all works. It, it's one of the ways that we are being prepared for the next phase of creation and why at the end of day six is unique. Now, the most important phrase in these verses is undoubtedly the image of God. If you look, it comes three times. It comes once in verse 26 and then twice in verse 27. Uh, it, it hasn't been used of anything else so far in all of the creations. So this is a new image, new idea that just comes uh, today. What does it mean? Well, I think we start with maybe the obvious but the important. It doesn't mean that God is physically like us or that we are physically like him. Now, that's important to say if you've been to the Sistine Chapel, you've looked up at the glory of uh, the ceiling, or to be fair, a lot of Renaissance art. Uh, God is not a muscly white guy. Uh, so we just sort of need to clear the decks on that. This phrase, the image of God, has become, though, it's like, a, it's like a blank canvas on which interpreters project their own meanings, uh, the things that mean most to them in their time or because of their personality. So if you trawl across the ages, the image of God, or we might rephrase that as the essential thing about being a human being, has been understood very widely. So it's been understood as rationality. Uh, that's what the image of God means, that we can think and we can reason and we can plan and review in a way that birds and planets and animals can't. Or some people say, no, 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 it's not, it's not rationality, it's morality. So we have, admittedly, a selective and sometimes mistaken sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now, now, your dog might know when you're angry, so possibly dogs maybe know a little bit about that, but most people would say that we have an, certainly an elevated sense of what is right. So maybe it's morality that is this thing uh, that separates us out. Some would say, no, 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 it's spirituality. It's that, that, that sense of spiritual longing and curiosity and asking questions and probing deeply. That's what makes us who we are. Someone say, no, 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 no. It's relational. You know, we're made to be connected. We're made to be connected to God. We're made to be connected uh, to each other. Someone say, no, no, it's not any of those things. It's creativity. And we've just seen Genesis 1 is, is full of the creator's creativity. And we even, some, some of that has been sprinkled over us as well. 
And there are many more. Often, they reflect the priorities and the temperament of the reader. But it would be wiser, wouldn't it, to let the passage lead us. And we read three key mandates that describe, in a sense, what uh, being made in God's image means. This is, in a sense, is, this is the job description of those who bear the image of God. Uh, the first comes uh, very clearly and quickly in uh, verse 26, that we, as people made in, in the image of God, we are to rule over the fish, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, the creatures. This is an image of our having God's delegated authority. God as creator gives us a measure of his divine authority to steward his creation. It's like the teacher who says to senior pupils, I'm popping out for half an hour, you're in charge. The teacher is not saying, do what you like for half an hour, fight, beat, and rob the younger pupils. In fact, the teacher is saying and expecting that they will act responsibly and in the teacher's name. So we are under-shepherds of creation in name of the great shepherd. This is a startling suggestion for many of us because we feel we don't particularly have a relationship with the created order, or with the fish, or with the birds, or with the animals. It, it kind of, we've delegated it. it. Someone else does all of that now. And that, of course, is part of our contemporary problem. It's widely understood that we are doing badly as stewards of creation. We are the sixth formers who revolt and trash the classroom. We are the under-shepherds who steal and maim the sheep. The second mandate comes in verse 28, if you just turn over at the page. It picks up the phrase in verse 27 that we are created male and female. We're going to come back to that. Look at verse 28. There we read, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and then a repeat of the first mandate, rule over the fish in the sea, birds in the sky, over every living creature. This mirrors the mandate uh, to the waters on day four, let the waters team, says God, and also the same decree, be fruitful, fill the seas. This picture is of small beginnings and big horizons. Not that there should be no wild, uninhabited places left on the earth, rather there will be joy, there will be value, there will be purpose in nurturing the world, growing as families, forming communities, all possible because of the generosity of God and the goodness of his creation. The third mandate comes in verse 29. I will give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree with fruit. They will be yours for food. This is primarily about God's generous resourcing of our planet, a planet of potential and plenty and prosperity for us both to enjoy but also for us to take care of. And it's certainly true, as we read here, that God's original gift and intention was that we were not meat eaters. Seeds and fruit are on the menu here. Now, Christians read the remainder of the Bible in a number of different ways, some deciding that we should be vegetarian uh, on the strength of these verses, some not uh, because of a wider reading of the whole of the Bible. Some haven't really asked the question at all, if we're honest. Uh, we should note that how Genesis 1 starts and we should honor, as we read in the New Testament, we should honor the decisions that each of us makes about food. The overall impact here takes us to the heart of those old human questions. 
Who am I? And what does it mean to be a human being? The emphasis here is that God, the creator, has put us in a position of responsibility. We are given much. There is much to enjoy and be grateful for. We are not the top of creation's pyramid. We're not the special ones who can do what we want. We are God's representatives or God's ambassadors, God's trusted delegates, God's friends even. We're still completely creatures and part of creation with the responsibility to care for and shepherd and uphold it. And we're to enjoy doing so. Now, before we discuss being made male and female in in his image, we should know what happens when you push some of the other proposed meanings of being made in God's image if we push them too far. Now, this brings us back to our relationship with the world of science. For understandable reasons, it is quite easy for educated, articulate people, there are some of you here, uh, to presuppose uh, that that what really separates from other creatures is our ability to think and our ability to reason. We've got bigger, more highly evolved brains. Now, it didn't take long for the thinkers who were influenced by Darwin to add a new twist to this. They thought that we should carry across the pattern of evolution and the survival of the fittest, and they said, well, we've seen it in nature. Let's now put it to work in politics and in government and in how we form communities. So they said the best way to run a country is light touch, no rules capitalism because that's the most natural scientific form of governance. Leave the poor, leave the infirm, leave the disabled, leave the elderly to fend for themselves. Let the rich and the able and the bright do as well as they can. And you can see how if you elevate rationality and then you say, oh, Darwin's given us this lovely model of the way God wants the world is uh, the survival of the fittest, you can see what damage that might do. Then scientists like Francis Galton took this one step further. He said, my responsibility as a scientist is to speed up the process of evolution through what? Through the selective breeding of people, as if we were roses or dogs. Now, this was seen as liberal and progressive in the US and in the UK for the first half of the 20th century, with serious-minded people contemplating that the poor and that the disabled should be sterilized to make the human gene pool better. Of course, it was then the Nazis who took this to its logical extreme, but they were using ideas that were widely accepted before the war. We would say with hindsight, that the survival of the fittest is a really ugly way to run the world. And it does not fit with the creator's blueprint. Now let's go back to verse 27. A fundamental part of our being created in the image of God is that we were created as two different but deeply complementary biological sexes, male and female, he created them. Now let's think about what this helps us understand about the image of God. It first tells us that God is neither male nor female. But God is not an it. God is more personal than we are, not less personal. Now in some languages, including English, it's hard to get this right. Right, we routinely talk of God as he, 
But we know that God isn't a human he, or indeed a human she. It also means that male and female are different, but equal. It's only together that we make up the image of God. So, despite what we say, boys are not best, sorry boys, and girls are not greatest, sorry girls. We've got this wrong, of course, a great deal in our churches and in our wider communities, with women routinely being treated as inferior or subservient or with less potential. But it doesn't mean we have to keep getting it wrong today. Men and women are equal. It's together that we reflect the breadth and the beauty of God's character. It's together that we are made in his image. The differences between us as male and female are categories of biological sex, not of gender. There is nothing here about gender roles or about gender stereotypes, so many of which are culture-specific and need, and need to be interrogated and provoked by this text. We should also note that this doesn't exclude or invalidate or demean those who are born intersex. There are 20 or so conditions which result, as you know, in a baby being born uh, with an atypical feature in their reproductive anatomy or in their chromosomes. Now, 99% of the very, very small number of babies born intersex are still clearly male or female. And we remain what scientists would call a sexually dimorphic mammal. In terms of how we reproduce, we have either eggs or sperm. Uh, there is no other. Now, we've addressed gender identity and gender dysphoria in a couple of Let's Talk Abouts, which we did uh, two years ago. So if you want to, in a sense, dig more deeply into that, do go back to those. All I'd want to underline uh, from those and from my own reading and thinking today is this, that if you or people that you know are struggling with the feeling of being born as one biological sex but yearning to be another, please come and talk to one of us or someone that you trust. These feelings can be incredibly isolating and frightening, so please come and talk. Second thing I'd say is please don't be rushed or radicalized into, into hormonal or surgical solutions. Talk, talk, and talk some more. And we would definitely say from our experience, please include parents and loved ones as soon as you can in those conversations. In some uh, forums and formats, uh, parents and grandparents are sort of are portrayed as the enemy, uh, the people to be overcome. Uh, it's much better uh, for them to be included from the very beginning. So at this stage, the emphasis is on the mutuality, complementarity, and creativity represented in our being made male and female. We together reflect God's image. This is immediately applied in the second creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, because each of us is, well, in our fallen world, almost every single one of us is either male or female. And so we have complementary but equally important parts uh, to play in this. Now, we should begin to come into land. I'm sure you spotted how our passage ends. At verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
Now, until now, every day has been pronounced as good, apart from day two. Uh, we were on a clergy conference uh, last week, and I went around the clergy conference and asked uh, other clergy, did they know which day was not pronounced good and why? And nobody did. <laughs> so it's, like, it's, a real, it's a real mystery. Brian and I have had a few conversations about it. We'd love to know what you think. Uh, day two is, is the separation of the waters. And so there's a possibility that says God didn't seem to be creating the waters, he seemed to be separating uh, what was already there. But certainly day two is the one day uh, where we don't hear the pronouncement of good. If you remember back to Brian's uh, sermon, which is so brilliant, Brian's um, translation of good was fit for purpose, which is such a great uh, way of describing this. Because good can be a bit soppy, can't it? Because like, good's not great. Um, and kind of goods like average, uh, but here that, that, that's not the meaning. It's kind of, it's perfectly shaped for its purpose and uh, original intention. Uh, I'm a Bristol boy, so Bristolians would say, we'd say that's something, if something like on a building site where I work and I was growing up, we'd say that's a proper job. And, and it's exactly the same idea, fit for purpose, proper job, you go with whatever one you want. It's not humanity though, that is pronounced as very good, as if we were the teacher's pet, and as though at this stage uh, the author is saying, sorry, sorry, lion, sorry, glacier, sorry, moonlight, uh, you're all good, but here is Simon Cansdale, he is very good. <laughs> That's not what's happening. The whole thing, the whole created order, including our specially commissioned part in it, that is what is pronounced as very good or a right proper, right proper job. In coming weeks, we are going to see more. So you've just got to be patient, particularly with some of the questions that Chris raises. We're going to see more in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 about the relationship between God and people. It says what, what makes us who we are, what defines this relationship with God. We'll see more about our responsibilities for the earth. We'll see more about the relationship between male and female and what marriage means. That really comes in two and three. So just please uh, be patient. For now, we rejoice that the universe gets God's big thumbs up. So we should enjoy it. We should celebrate it. We should be curious about it. We should continue in this great creation mandate to care and expand and discover. And we note that these verses in Genesis 1 are not the climax. They're not the big finale of the Genesis creation story. See, we as human beings, we would love that, wouldn't we? As though us lot arriving on the scene was the point to which the whole thing had been moving. Here's Simon. As though we were the kind of the very center of all that was going on. Certainly, we have a specific place and responsibilities, part of the creation responsible under God for it. But the climax of Genesis opening chapter doesn't come until next time, uh, which is day seven, which we'll do here in two weeks' time, the day that God rests. Now that is enough to get your little activist hearts and minds pumping. Day seven is where it's at in this chapter of sevens. Day seven is the place where all of this is leading. So you've got to hold your horses, pause for breath, come back in two weeks' time. Amen.